The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. In the letter that Dennis read from by Chip Livingston, a Cree ancestor returns with a reassuring message for his grandson after Trump's election. You exist, he tells the young man. You exist. Two little words that embody the triumph of generations. You exist. A celebration of endurance, but also an imperative and proof of a mysterious evolutionary process that might be interrupted, but not defeated. A purpose not beholden to human understanding. You exist. Later in the letter, the ancestor tells the young man, the continent is calling out for its true citizens, restoring the balance of brown people who first emerged upon its mud. I'm telling you, the land is almost ready for your occupation. I love when mystery and history collide, exposing that messy layer where fate and free will become indistinguishable. There's a story about Charles Darwin that has become for me a sort of psalm <laughs> that I go to when I want to celebrate and po uh, ponder the puzzle. In 1862, Charles Darwin received a package in the mail. It was from Madagascar, sent by horticulturist James Bateman. When Darwin opened the box, he was astonished to find orchids unlike any he'd ever seen. Forming the nectary of the flowers were whip-like green spurs that were over 12 inches in length. And even stranger, the nectar was at the very bottom of them. He surmised that there had to be a pollinator moth <laughs> with a proboscis long enough to reach the nectar at the end of the spur. When he presented his theory to his peers, he was ridiculed. It wasn't until 20 years after Darwin's death that the orchid's moth was found to exist, and not until 1992 was the first photographic evidence of the moth visiting the orchid captured by biologist Luntz T. Wasserthal. In 2004, 143 years after Darwin's prediction, night vision videographic technology had advanced sufficiently so that the biologist Philip J. DeVry was able to capture the first videographic evidence of the moth feeding from and pollinating the orchid. I love so much about this story. I love how the pursuit of the evolutionary process evolved as the scientific instruments evolved. But <laughs> what I love the most 
is that the orchid and the moth had been carrying out their exuberant, life-giving dance under the moonlight for who knows how long <laughs> before it was observed by human beings. In these challenging times when we're facing the shutdown of reason, when theocrats have seized control of our judiciary, when great institutions of science and learning are being undermined by right-wing autocrats, I find the story of the orchid and the moth reassuring. Darwin didn't need to see the moth to know that it existed. He saw the orchid. He saw the spur. He saw the nectar at the bottom of it. I like to think of beloved community in this context, that I hunger for its nectar as proof that it exists. In difficult times when my orchid is hard to find or is kept from me, my hunger will not let me forget to whom I belong. My wings will not know the weight of despair because my longing, my longing is my hope. John Lewis, the great civil rights leader, author, and congressman known for his tireless work for human and voting rights, was arrested approximately 40 times in his life. He was the first person to be severely beaten as he tried to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma on the fateful day that would come to be known as Bloody Sunday because of the brutality of the attack by police on the marchers. He was frequently asked in his, in his later years why he hadn't become bitter after all he'd seen and been through. He'd answer, because he knew in his gut that right would prevail. Born in Alabama to sharecroppers in 1940, John Lewis would recount how, in their attempt to keep him safe, his elders would often admonish him to stay quiet and not make trouble when something upsetting happened. But he was 15 years old when 14-year-old Emmett Till was lynched. And he realized that being quiet and not making trouble was no buffer against danger. He'd taken to listening to a young Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. on an old radio for inspiration and decided to write him a letter. He sent a letter to Dr. King. And Dr. King invited John Lewis to come to Montgomery. The moth and the orchid had found each other. Educated in the ways of nonviolence at Highlander Folk School in Tennessee with alumni that included the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, Pete Seeger, and Ralph Abernathy, John Lewis lived according to this philosophy, that when we see something that is not right, not fair, or not just, we are morally obligated to stand up, speak out, and get in the way. John Lewis called it 
getting into good trouble. After the successes and the struggles of the civil rights era, it's hard to swallow the setbacks we're witnessing. They are not small. We've actually witnessed an attempted coup at our nation's capital by right-wing white nationalist terrorists. Incredibly, some of their allies and conspirators, conspirators still hold office in the capital and have yet to suffer any consequences. It is not hyperbole to say that our democracy hinges on the results of the upcoming election. But let's remember that this is an ancient story. In the Old Testament, like clockwork, every two generations, the gains of the past would be undone. The grandchildren would go astray and find themselves in bondage again. But then, a new redeemer schooled by the hardship and inspired by ancestral victories, would rise and lead the people back to freedom. And each time they prevailed, their relationship to each other and to the great source of life and wonder would grow deeper. It would evolve. So yes, we find ourselves being pushed backwards right now, but we mustn't give in to our despair. The story of the world does not belong to the 1960s and 70s. This is an infinite story. We must stop saying, this is what we did, and then crying because someone broke it. We must say instead, this is how we do it, and get back to work. Those of us who have witnessed moments when love has triumphed over hate, when curiosity has triumphed over fear, those of us who have consistently walked the long and sacred path of peace and have witnessed its mysterious power to wind its way in the direction of folks who were thought to be lost, those of us who have patiently tended to the spirit of a broken person and have seen it heal and then bud, and then blossom, and then bear fruit. We must tell our stories. We must share them. They are prophetic. They are instructional. Here's Sufi master and beloved Persian poet Rumi sharing such a story with us. If you are seeking, seek us with joy, for we live in the kingdom of joy. Do not stray into the neighborhood of despair. There are hopes. They are real. They exist. I tell you, sons exist. Thank you, Rumi. We need to be on the lookout for the new redeemers, the light-giving sons of our time, and we must amplify their splendor. Unitarian Universalists are uniquely equipped for this because our religion was founded on good trouble. We're the heretics who dare to question every religious, social, or political narrative in our responsible search for truth and meaning. We are the church that challenges its people to expand rather than shrink the mystery. We are the church that affirms the right to act on conscience because we know from experience that humankind, 
humankind is innately good. We nurture curiosity because we recognize it as the key to compassion and enlightenment. This is why democratic process is one of our founding principles. This is why democratic process is an integral part of our religious practice. UUs have a deep respect for the interchange of diverse voices because that's how we deepen in wisdom. Embracing diversity is why we do not put limits on expressions of love. We are the church of Scopius love. We are desperately needed in the world right now. We must not allow ourselves to despair at what has been upended. We have been here before. We have overcome before. We must recognize the moment we are in and rise to the occasion like Cal's father did and John Lewis did and John Buren does and Stark King did. We must act. We must confront their attempts at building their coarse anti-democratic monuments over our legacy. What they are erecting is ephemeral. What we are restoring is everlasting. We must confront them without ambiguity. And may the ardor of our response be commensurate to the gratitude we owe our ancestors who sacrificed in every way for us. We owe too great a debt to allow ourselves to be cowed. Let them comprehend again and again and again that human dignity is an implacable and restless spirit, and it rises in righteous anger when it's provoked. Let those who trample on democracy tremble at the sight of us. Good people, free people, a world community begat by and devoted to the interconnected web of all existence schooled by histories and arts and sciences, impervious to their threats and lies. We are the embodiment of relentless hope and revolutionary love. We exist, and we will not yield until there is liberty and justice for all. Today, we embark on a letter-writing campaign that will launch our commitment to become a good trouble congregation. May our letters, like Darwin's orchids, prove to their recipients that beloved community already exists. We are here. And may they be called by that certainty to further the momentum of generations and help our nation evolve into the real and true democracy whose nectar we know in our guts we are made to partake of. Gracias a la vida. May it be so. Amen. Great, I have to follow that. That was wonderful. Why do I vote? Like many young men, my father enlisted in the Army shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor. 
At the time, he was a credit manager for a department store and living with his mother in Dallas. He found that the military ethos uh, suited him and decided he wanted to become an officer. He applied to officer candidate school, passed all the written requirements, but failed the physical because he didn't meet the minimum weight requirement. Seeing how much he wanted it, the doctor suggested that he go out and eat as many bananas as he could stomach and come back right away for another weigh-in. He managed to choke down God knows how many of them, <laughs> and thus began his career in the Army, which would span 30 years and three wars. He was a natural leader and loved the command assignments that put him in direct contact with the enlisted men. Later, he would be moved into higher-level command positions, but would always miss his relationship with the frontline soldiers. His love for the Army was driven by the sense of community, a community bound together by a higher purpose. He never glorified violence. There was never a gun in our house. He hated war and would never speak about what he did in wartime. For my dad, integrity and intelligence were the highest attributes one could strive for. He loved vigorous debate and would start an argument just for the fun of it. He had a very strong, some would say overdeveloped, sense of right and wrong and had an uncompromising ethical standard. The running joke in our house was that my father would turn in his own grandmother for cheating on her taxes. Growing up poor and Jewish in Texas, he knew something of hardship and discrimination, but always believed in the power of the rule of law as a covenant binding all of us into civil community. Fast forward to 2020, and fair to say I was in a constant state of low-level rage, interrupted by brief moments of fury over what had happened in our country. I'm glad my dad was not here to see what had been elected as the 45th president. He would not recognize the country he dedicated his life to serve, a country where lying, low character, and ignorance is being celebrated and rewarded where nothing is more important than money, and in which a state religion has now been established and imposed. I had retired in early 2020, and like so many others, I was intent on doing something to give back to the community. I had no idea what that meant, having never done any activist work. My dear friend, Mari, and I had been having deep conversations about uh, Unitarian Universalism, and I joined the church as a way to learn, get engaged, and to serve. I attended General Assembly in June of that year, something I would not recommend to folks brand new to the church. Uh, smoke was trailing out of my ears for weeks afterwards. And I, but I did hear about a new campaign, and it was new in this year, called You, You, The Vote. Toward the end of GA, there was a phone bank party with volunteers from all over the country calling into Texas to help people in underserved neighborhoods get registered and develop a plan to vote. I was terrified to cold call people, but you know, I dove in and actually got to have a few conversations. I got to hear about how Californians moving into Texas were ruining the state with their socialism and fancy cheeses. <laughs> no, not kidding. 
But I also got to talk to a woman who would go on to register to vote for the first time. Later, when calling into Florida, I got to talk to a young man who said, dude, I'm taking my, my girlfriend and her entire family to vote. I spoke with an older woman in Georgia who politely let me introduce myself and go through a little spiel. And when I asked her if she intended to vote, she simply replied, oh, honey, we got this. And suddenly, my, my heart was full. Later, uh, I began taking on a support role, primarily running Zoom parties for national phone banks. UU the vote squads were formed up, and we became practiced and efficient at putting together phone bank parties that could have as many as 150 people calling voters in battleground states. In the end, 5,000 volunteers across 450 congregations contacted 3 million voters in battleground states. But something else happened. One day it occurred to me that I had friends all across the country, that inadvertently I had stumbled into community a diverse and beloved community of common cause and shared passion. We laughed, we listened, we grew to trust each other. I had found love. I realized that this intelligent, engaged, and diverse community is a living testament to the possibility of the broader, beloved community we so ardently seek to bring forth. So why do I vote? I vote to preserve our democratic norms and principles, to support the values of humane, just, and dignified treatment of all people, bodily autonomy, and a healthy planet. I vote because my dad devoted his life to ensuring that I could do so in a free and fair election. I vote because if the arc of history is to bend towards justice, then we are all going to have to do the bending.